Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. And we're jumping back into Daniel. So if you were here in February, we started the book of Daniel. We covered chapters one and chapters two of the book of Daniel back in February. So if you missed any of those, go back, listen to the podcast, get yourselves up to speed. Because today we're going to jump in with chapters three, four and five, a rapid fly through. So by way of recap, Daniel is written from the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonians have conquered Jerusalem and Daniel is written by surprise, a guy called Daniel. He documents the experience of those Jews who've been taken from Jerusalem back to Babylon and are living in exile. There's a couple of overarching themes that we see throughout the book of Daniel. We see the underlying directive or ethos of the Babylonian culture, which is actually summarised earlier in the Bible in the book of Isaiah chapter 47 verse 8 when it describes Babylon saying, You lover of pleasure, lounging in your security, saying to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. Because in Babylon, self is God. Self-worship or self-promotion is the true religion in Babylon. And at the pinnacle of this is the king Nebuchadnezzar. In contrast to this, we are also presented with the directive or the ethos of God, where God is sovereign, there is one true God. And God calls us to live with integrity in an enticing world. In the book of Daniel, we get multiple glimpses of Jesus, both in the prophetic scriptures of the book, but also as an underlying theme through the heart of the book. The Jesus who said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So we're going to kick off with chapter 3, the fiery furnace. So we start with King Nebuchadnezzar, who builds this gold statue that's 27 metres tall, 2.7 metres wide. This is just off the back of Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter two, where he also had a dream about a statue where he was the gold head and the statue came crashing down. He just doesn't get it. Nebuchadnezzar is projecting this image of glory throughout the whole book of Daniel and gold is his signature. The king calls together all the officials and governors of the land to be at the dedication of the statue. And when they're listed, they're actually listed in order of perceived importance. It's all part of this self-promotion trap, the perceived importance that we humans tend to give to titles. He orders the people to worship the statue, declaring that anyone who refuses to obey, refuses to worship the statue, will be thrown into a blazing furnace. One problem with this is that you will never receive true admiration if you command it of people. Because true admiration is earned, not demanded. Have you ever noticed that the people you meet in life who are truly admirable don't feel the need to go around telling you how admirable they are? They just are admirable? And have you noticed that the people who feel the need to tell you all the time just how impressive they are are often not that impressive? We call this bravado. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of bravado. Now, if you have a Babylonian mindset, important people bowing down to you is the height of self-importance. And here enters Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. These are three Jewish exiles who we met back in chapter one along with Daniel. And they keep themselves pure. They keep integrity and refuse to bow down and worship the statue. Now, the local astrologers are jealous of these guys, so they dob them in to the king. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are promptly hauled before the Nebuchadnezzar and commanded to bow down to the statue. Their response is astounding. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. 
He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. They essentially say to him, we don't answer to you, we answer to God. It is profound integrity and faithfulness. Think of our own world. What challenges do we face that tempt us to compromise on our convictions? We might not be facing a literal fiery furnace, but we can be challenged with the threat of human disapproval or conversely, our own need for human approval. Once upon a time, it was reasonably easy to live as a Christian in our culture and fly under the radar of public notice. But our culture is shifting more and more such that to live according to God's will will cause us to stand out, to risk disapproval, to risk mockery, to potentially miss out on recognition or promotion. And the time may be coming when each of us will be called to take a stand for what we believe in. Are we prepared and can we predetermine to hold fast to God whether or not he comes through in the way we expect? Nebuchadnezzar, ever the hothead, is so enraged at the response of these three men that he orders them to be thrown into the fiery furnace. He, in fact, orders the furnace to be heated so hot that even the soldiers who threw them in are killed. It says, suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in a amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Many scholars suggest that this fourth man in the furnace is the pre-incarnate Jesus and out of the furnace come Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego completely unharmed by the flames. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. In response, Nebuchadnezzar praises God and decrees that no one can speak against him and he promotes Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I am in awe of the resolve shown by these young men. They are faced with a literal fiery furnace, yet their faith never wavers. In fact, their faith was never actually dependent on the outcome. Regardless of their circumstances, they had predetermined that they would serve the one true God. We can face many fires in our own lives. And it is so imperative that like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, we predetermine what our response will be before we face the hard questions. And when we face the fire, there are three possible scenarios. Scenario number one, God delivers us from the fire through which our faith is built. Number two, God can deliver us through the fire, through which our faith is refined. Or number three, God delivers us by the fire into his arms, through which our faith is perfected. Regardless of which of these is our experience, we can take confidence in Isaiah 43 verse 2, words which were no doubt on these young men's hearts. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And here we close off chapter 3 and fly on to chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a tree. The authorship changes here and portions of Daniel chapter 4, it's Nebuchadnezzar himself writing retrospectively but in the first person. Nebuchadnezzar has yet another dream that troubles him. He seems to have mellowed a little bit by this stage because while he summons all the wise men to come and interpret the dream, he doesn't threaten to torture them if they can't. So Nebuchadnezzar dreams of a large tree in the middle of the earth that grew tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. 
Then the tree is cut down, the animals are chased away, and the stump and the roots are left in the ground but bound with iron and bronze. And then it goes on to say, for seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar has another weird dream that begins with a tall and imposing structure that's brought low. And once again, Daniel interprets the dream. Daniel explains how the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar himself, the king of the greatest empire in all the world at that moment in history. And just as the tree falls, so does Nebuchadnezzar, who succumbs to a period of insanity. Verse 30 says, Nebuchadnezzar looked out across the city and he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence and display my majestic splendour. Now, I don't think we usually go around the world saying, look at my majestic splendour in as many words. But we still have this heart sometimes. We build up images of ourselves that we project to the world around us. The buildings in Babylon were said to have been covered with beautiful tiles of blue, yellow and white that would make the city shine. But underneath the tiles, they're all just plain bricks. We likewise can cover ourselves, cover our true selves and project an artificially polished version of ourselves to the world. We call it being fake. Have you noticed that you can always tell when someone is being fake? And have you noticed how refreshing it is when you meet someone who is genuinely authentic? Can we be a church who champions authenticity? Now, I'm not saying it's wrong that we should try and put our best foot forward or be the best version of ourselves that we can be but not at the expense of authenticity. Image building occurs when we intentionally try to hide our true selves and project an artificial version of ourselves to the world in an attempt to impress others. And we can all be susceptible to this. Jesus says in Matthew 23, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones and of the dead and everything unclean.'" Because at the heart of image building is pride. Pride in what we can do in our own strength, what we can create, how good we can be. We might not be so very different from Nebuchadnezzar who calls all these important people around him to reaffirm his own importance. It's the ultimate case of fishing for compliments on pain of death. But when we fall into this trap of building and projecting artificial images of ourselves to the world, we're falling into self-reliance, which finds its root in pride rather than reliance on God, which is rooted in humility. I want to briefly mention another type of image building that we can fall into. Remember, the Babylonian motto is that I am and there is none besides me. We humans are so susceptible to falling into this motto and we usually assume that it's an arrogant attitude that thinks to itself, I am important, there is none as important as me. But there's actually another side to this coin and it's a trap that's equally as dangerous. We can get caught in the trap of negative imagery. We can build an image of ourselves that is equally dangerous, but very different. We can find ourselves saying and believing about ourselves, I'm stupid, there is none as stupid as me. I'm unlucky, there is none as unlucky as me. I am worthless, there is none as worthless as me. It's a very very different sort of image to the first one, but just as dangerous and just as false. And image building, whether positive or negative, or elated or deflated, all comes back to the same thing. It's a focus on me. In John 3 verse 30, Jesus says, he must become greater and I must become less. Because when God is magnified in our lives and we take our eyes off ourselves, all our pride, 
all our self-importance and also all our self-loathing and self-deprecation diminishes and we start to see ourselves as God sees us, neither greater nor less than we should be, but dearly loved by God, created to do good and to love well. And it's here at the height of his self-ordained glory that Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind and succumbs to insanity for seven periods of time, possibly seven years, not really sure. Daniel describes later how when Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He has placed his security in his possessions, in his status, in his title and in his wealth. And he learns the hard way how very quickly it can all come crashing down. It is yet another foretaste of what Jesus will teach 600 years later when he says in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Nebuchadnezzar is brought low, and only then is he restored. His sanity returns and his kingdom is restored to him. And from his new position of humility, he praises God and says in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honour the King of heaven. All his acts are just and true and he is able to humble the proud. Here ends chapter four, moving on to chapter five. You're keeping up. The writing on the wall. So we're going to fast forward many, many years now. Nebuchadnezzar has died and a guy called King Belshazzar is ruling. There was originally actually some conjecture about the historical accuracy of Daniel chapter five because the last recorded king of Babylon is a guy called Nabonidus. Nebuchadnezzar's son. But what we find on further study is that King Belshazzar is actually the son of Nabonidus. So he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's serving as acting king or co-regent with his father who spends a lot of his reign away on campaigns. It is amazing how many researchers with their great intellect have tried to outthink the Bible, but the Bible holds its own every time. The truth will always end up prevailing victorious over even the most contrived of lies. King Belshazzar has forgotten all about Daniel at this time. He's forgotten the lessons of his grandfather. He throws a banquet with all his nobles, with his wives, with his concubines. When the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem, they plundered the temple and brought back many sacred artefacts, including some golden cups. As part of the drunken revelry, Belshazzar now orders these gold cups to be brought out. And while they drank with them, the Babylonians praised their idols. They have taken that which was created to worship God and twisted it towards worship of pleasure, worship of self and worship of idols. And once again, we see this Babylonian motto, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security, saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. Verse five says, suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall. The king turns pale with fright, his knees knock, his legs give way. He calls all his wise men to try and tell him what the writing means, but none of them can. Then enters the queen mother. She tells Belshazzar about this man, Daniel, who used to interpret dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. She says that he was found to have insight, wisdom and understanding. So Daniel is summoned before Belshazzar, who proves to be a little more level than his predecessor. While Nebuchadnezzar would threaten torture to anyone who couldn't interpret his dream, Belshazzar instead offers a reward of being the third highest ruler in the land. Daniel answers with this amazing boss move. He says, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. Daniel challenges Belshazzar on his pride and on his idol worship. He says, you have not honoured the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Then he reads and interprets the writing on the wall, which says, mene, mene, tekel and parson. Mene meaning numbered. God has numbered your days and your reign will be brought to an end. Tekel meaning weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. 
and Parson meaning divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel 5, 30 to 31 tells us that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at age 62. And the rest, as they say, is history. We, in fact, know from history that the Babylonian Empire fell to the Media Persian Empire in 539 BC. And we see the silver chest and arms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2 fulfilled. So, we have three separate chapters of Daniel. Three seemingly completely different historical events. But when you look deeper at the underlying message, we actually see a common theme emerge. What we see is a choice that's presented to these young men. It's the same as the choice that is presented to each of us today. We are presented with two possible worldviews, two ways of living. Option number one is the Babylonian way. The way that would say, I am, and there is none besides me. The way that would encourage self-promotion, self-identification, sometimes even self-deprecation. But always at its core is this theme of self, self, self. The way that would have us obsess so much over self, how we construct these images of self in our mind and how we project these falsified images of self to the world. Or option two, God's way. The way that would choose daily to die to self. The way that would follow Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because when God is magnified in our lives and we can take our eyes off self, all our pride, all our self-importance and all our even self-deprecation and self-loathing diminishes and we start to see ourselves as God sees us, neither greater nor less than we should be. Because those who are truly secure in their God-given identity have no need of either self-promotion or self-deprecation. 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Hey, um, we're just going to extend on Daniel chapter 3, and I just wanted to share some thoughts about that. And uh, I, I wanted to get straight into my first point. This is, I'm ripping up the preacher's handbook, and we're going straight into the first point, not opening with a joke, not opening with a story. We're going straight into point one. Point one is we are designed to worship God. We are designed to worship God. Let me illustrate with a story. Um, a couple of years ago, we were living in the UK, in Bristol, and um, our eldest son, Archer, were turned old enough, turned four and a half. You don't turn four and a half, you turn four and you become four and a half. Um, he was then eligible to go to school, to start school. They start school a bit earlier in the UK. And um, he commenced reception, which is their kindergarten and uh, I was a stay-at-home dad that uh, year and one day I got a phone call from the school. And who knows that when you get a phone call from the school, it's not something good. They're not ringing up to say, hey, your son's got a sticker on his collar and we gave him a pat on the back because he wrote the number five around the right way. Um, you don't get those phone calls, do you? It's usually something serious, something wrong that's happened. And so I took the phone call from uh, the reception staff and they said, uh, Mr McKenzie, I said, yes, it's a school calling. Uh, we've had an incident with Archer. I said, oh, really? Okay, sure. And they said, we, uh, we uh, were celebrating Holy Week, not Holy Week, Holy, H-O-L-I, which is a Hindu festival. They were celebrating that at the Church of England Anglican School that we send our kid to. And uh, all right, we'll just go past that. <laughs> and uh, your son refused to do the colouring in activity for Holly. And I went, oh, Really? And they said, he said that he didn't think it was the right thing to do. And so he just sat 
with a blank sheet of paper in front of him and didn't partake in the Holly uh, Festival. Now, we'd never had that discussion with him. We'd never talked about Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and then Christianity. You're a Christian, you're on that team. We'd never had that discussion. Never. Never talked about um, Ten Commandments. There is no other God before I. That's God. Um, Never. Never, ever. And so that day realised that we are wired for worship. He could not explain why he felt that way. If you can just imagine a little four-year-old sitting at the tiny little tables with the colouring in there and just refusing to do it. There was something in his spirit that said, no, this doesn't sit with me. He wouldn't even known the word conviction or worship or standing up for God. He wouldn't have known that, but he followed through with that. Anyway, Isaiah 43, 7 says, they are my people. I created each of them to bring honour to me. By a show of hands, who loves nature? Who loves getting out into nature? Be that into the bush, be that into salt water along the coastline of our beautiful country that is girt by sea. Um, I love it. Nature has a way of drawing us closer to God. Nature has a way of turning that moment into worship. And non-Christians would say that there's just something about nature that centres me, that settles me, that um, inspires me. Well, we look at nature and we think, okay, this is God's creation over us. And there's a few verses that are up, uh, no, behind me. They're not coming up. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The trees of the forest sing for joy. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. And the next slide, the meadows and the valleys Shout and sing together for joy. A lot of personification in that. Sing, O heavens, shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into the singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord will be glorified in Israel. You see, nature aligns our spirit to God. It can. And I'm not talking about pantheism here this morning, but I am talking about a reminder in life that is just a moment that allows us to turn our hearts, our minds, our soul, our spirit towards Jesus and allows us to take a moment of worship. See, when we treasure, when we prize and when we enjoy God in those moments, we just tune our spirit back in through the vehicle of worship into heaven and we join with heaven just by allowing our spirit to worship God. We allow our spirit inside of us, the Holy Spirit, to worship God. Worship puts worth on God. It's my second point this morning. Worship puts worth on God. And in Daniel 3, which Phoebe um, really well put, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, through an act of worship, by by standing in front of a fiery furnace and saying, you know what, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to worship you because we believe in the one true mighty God. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. They held true of that. They knew that they were going to get pushed into the fire or they could. And so Daniel 3, 16 to 17 says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. 
And so they didn't sing two praise points, then break for welcome, and then ha- two praise songs, then break for welcome, and then do a worship song. They didn't do it like that. That's what we think of when we talk about worship. They didn't get down on their knees and pray. They didn't give money to the church. They didn't um, post a, a lovely little Bible verse on their social media. But what they did was that they brought God into a moment and they put a worth on him that was greater than the worth on their own life and safety. And so that in itself is an act of worship. They honoured their high and mighty God. So when your words, your actions and your lifestyle point to God, that is an act of worship in itself. It's to kiss towards God, as the Hebrew word for worship says, defined, to kiss towards. So Romans 14, 17 to 18 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, talking about living in earth, not a matter of what we eat and drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and the others will approve of you too. And so as Phoebe pointed out, the story goes that King Nebuchadnezzar saw that there was an angel a heavenly being in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And he sees that there's no smoke on them. Their skin wasn't burnt. They were still alive. And he calls them out and he calls them out of the fire. And he says to them in verse 26 to 29, you servants of the most high God come out at once. And they came out and the king's high officials, governors and advisors all crowded around them. The men were not burned, their hair was, wasn't scorched and their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And the king said to them, praise their God for sending an angel to rescue his servants. They trusted their God and refused to obey my commands. Yes, they chose to die rather than to worship or serve any God except their own. And I won't allow people of any nation or race to say anything against their God. Anyone who does will be chopped up and their houses will be torn down because no other God has such great power to save. He was still a bad dude. (laughs) But in that moment, he saw that their worship of God honoured God and he saw the power of God over himself, his ego-inflated self. He saw the worth, the power, the might, the sovereignty. And so he didn't believe in God in that moment, even though he saw one of the coolest miracles that happened in history. But he could not deny the majesty of God because these three men decided to turn one, possibly the last act of their life into an act of worship. And that story could have gone another painful, deadly way But God honoured that worship. He honoured that worship. Third point here this morning. Worship puts a God perspective on everything. So these guys were so sure they were rescued, they were going to be rescued by God instead of burned alive. And in Daniel 3.18 it says this. But even if he doesn't rescue us, we want to make it clear to you, Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up for yourself. So I love that they have this this brilliant caveat on their very valiant statement. It's like a a little, uh, yeah, but although 
this might happen. They just wanted to acknowledge that they're not crazy, but they, they knew exactly what could have happened and probably should have happened, but by divine intervention. But they pointed out that God can come into any moment. And it wasn't a lack of faith that verse 18 is written. It wasn't them going, oh, yeah, but, you know, if he can't, it was more about, no, if he won't, if he chooses not to. And so they pointed out God's sovereignty. So God didn't have to bow down to that prayer request and ask and allow that to happen, that they would go through the fire unharmed. But he turned that moment into something really cool. He, his character is still perfect no matter which way the story finishes. He's still in control and his will always prevails, whatever that may be. And those guys were prepared for the will to go the other way, but they were not prepared to miss an opportunity to worship God. And so Isaiah in, in Isaiah 43, 2-3 says, When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. And when you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Isaiah lived 100 years before Daniel. So he wrote about going through fires, not being burned up 100 years before it actually happened against the odds. He wouldn't have been thinking, oh, in 100 years' time, there's going to be three dudes that are going to go through the fire and they're, not, they're going to go through and they weren't going to be burned. No, he wasn't thinking that. He was just receiving prophecy from God. But isn't it amazing how a prophet 100 years earlier in another land listened to God, wrote that down, proclaimed it, and then God just used that prophecy in an almighty way, proving his sovereignty. How awesome is that? If you can't worship a God that can do that, I don't know what's going to influence you. So John Piper, who's a modern-day theologian, puts it this way. True worship is based on a right understanding of God's nature and it is a right valuing of God's worth. It's an understanding of God's nature and a right valuing of God's worth. And so when we worship, we project worth onto God. And each moment that we choose to worship is just another moment whereby we remind ourselves of how big he is, where we remind himself, ourselves of what he can do in our life. And maybe we don't need reminding, but it's just another moment where we just acknowledge that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is powerful, and that he can do all things according to his will and his goodness. And so worship is just a posture that we put our soul into. It's a position that we put our spirit into. It's a way of saying to God, I am human, you are God, I want to magnify you and I want to allow you to be magnified in my life. It's, a, it's, it's an actual discipline. And so when, when we can take moments looking at nature, when we can sit down and read our Bible and the words just pop up from the page and hit us and they speak to our spirit. When it's, playing, um, when it's playing background music that's worship music in the car or in the house, telling Siri to um, play the best contemporary worship, whatever it might be. These are moments that join us with heaven. 
that connect us with heaven. And we can do that in private and that's important. But we can also do it publicly with other people watching around, be that our friends, our family, whoever it might be. It doesn't need to be weird. It just needs to be firm, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They weren't weird about it. They were quite respectful towards the king, even though they, you know, dishonoured him. But they still said it respectfully. And so there's a way as Christians that we're able to do that and we're able to still glorify God in a society that is quite Babylonian, as Phoebe talked about, that it is quite removed from the ways and the will of God. And so you might feel today in this moment, in this chapter of your life, that you are passing through a fiery furnace, that it's like, God, I don't know how we ended up here, whether it be my mistake, be it circumstances, be it God just... Uh, not answering prayers yet, whatever it might be. We've all gone through moments where we've found ourselves in a fiery furnace, be it oppression from other people, whatever it might be. And so we, we want to take this time just to pray and just worship God for 30 seconds. You can do that in your spirit as I pray over all of us right now. Father God, thank you that you're the eternal God, meaning that you're the same God that pulled those three Judeans out of the fiery furnace. That is the same God in Tamworth a couple of thousand years later. We acknowledge that you are still mighty, that you still hear our prayers, that you still love us, that you are still sovereign and your, your will and your ways are perfect. And so, Lord, as we hand up our circumstances to you this morning, the bad stuff, the fiery stuff, the deep rivers, just pray, Lord, that you will help us to lift our spirits and worship you in those moments where we're wrestling with the circumstances, where we can't see a way out, where we think we're going to be harmed, where we think that maybe you're not going to be with us. But, Lord, would you remind us that you were there in the fire with those three Judeans? that you were there and you're still here right now and in this day and age and in this, in this place, be it the church, be it Tamworth, be it wherever we are, but be it uh, anywhere in the world today. And so, Father, I just ask, Lord, that you will help us to lift our own spirits through discipline, but, Lord, would you give us reminders of your goodness as we take time to reflect on you. We ask this um, in your mighty name. Amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.